I guess there was that whistling that was coming up every now and then. I heard it a couple of times. If I can hear it, probably anybody can hear it. My wife says I can't hear anything. So, uh, uh, so if I could hear it, you know, it's. Uh, I'm just getting older, you know. All right, back to Acts chapter five. All right, new Mike, new man. Here we go. Uh, Acts chapter five, verse twenty-two. Uh, but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they Returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. The one came and told them, saying, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. <clears throat> then the captain went out with the officers, and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit of God, who is, uh, Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Let's pray again. Father, we now open your word. We know that it's eternal. We know that it's life-changing. We know that it's quick and sharp and powerful. And More than any two-edged sword, Lord, it divides the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, we pray that your word that will forever be in heaven would do a work in us this morning. Lord, it would be a transformative work. Whether we know you, that we'd know you more. If we don't know you, Lord, we'd come to know you. I pray that your spirit would speak, the same spirit that was speaking through Peter would speak this morning. I ask for your anointing, your help, your strength. Lord, you'd remove every distraction, and Lord, you'd minister as only you can to the power of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 136 years ago, so if you feel old, none of you are that old, 136 years ago, In 1887, the words to a hymn that you probably have heard of, Trust and Obey, were written by the Reverend J.H. Samus. He was from Brooklyn, New York. He was a former businessman. I really relate to this guy. He was a former businessman turned pastor who went on to preach and teach the gospel and the word of God for 40 years. He also taught at Biola, some of you probably, uh, Biola Bible Institute of Los Angeles. There in Los Angeles, he passed from earth to heaven in 1919. But he left behind all of his teaching, so that you can actually still go and research some of his teaching, and he left behind over 100 hymns. But probably the most famous among them is Trust and Obey. Many of you have probably sang it many times in your lifetime. It's found virtually in any hymnal that you pick up. 
And by the way, on one yet-to-be-determined Sunday, I have not forgotten that we're going to do a hymn day. I mean, Jackson just did a hymn, uh, but, uh, or, or did one this morning. We'll, you'll hear later. But anyway, uh, we'll do a, hymn, a day with a hymn book. I haven't forgotten. Well, now it'll either be a surprise, so you'll come in, there'll be a hymn under your chair, or we'll let you know in advance. I don't know which it's going to be, but... Uh, I pro- that doesn't mean we're going to replace overhead projection. There'll still be contemporary worship. And just that one Sunday, we want you to hold a hymn. For kids, it'll be a life-changing experience. For them, uh, they thought everything was digital in the world. And there was a time when yellow pages and hymns were the norm. And so uh, they didn't even realize that you used to have to open the yellow pages to order pizza. But, uh, but the hymn was the way that you would sing a song. So we'll uh, and you can see that, kids, that's what, a, that's what a hymn page looks like right there. It's got these notes, it's got these stanzas. Um, but we'll do that one Sunday. But, but we want to do that just as a remembrance of the way God has moved and spoke in the church in the past. And I believe he still wants to speak today. But when this hymn was written, it was a series of meetings that were taking place in Massachusetts in 1886. And uh, the renowned evangelist D.L. Moody was the one that was preaching at these particular meetings in Massachusetts. And on one particular night, uh, a young man rose up and gave a testimony, and the exact words he said were this. He said, I'm not quite sure, but I am going to trust and obey. There was a young man who stood up in those meetings and said, I'm not quite sure, but I am going to trust and obey. And Daniel B. Towner was the music conductor that night and throughout those evangelistic meetings that week. And he also, when he heard this young man's voice and his testimony, he jotted down the words that this young man said, and then he wrote and sent a little note to Reverend Samus, who was impacted so much by these simple words uh, that pastor, as you can see in the picture right there, he was so impacted that he sat down and he wrote the five stanza hymn that we now sing today. Once he heard about that young man's little words, I'm going to trust and obey. But that same, and later, uh, D.B. Towner, uh, the same Daniel B. Towner, you can see his uh, reference there on the actual hymn, he wrote the music, the tune, to what we sing today. So the tune was written by him, uh, the words were written by Reverend Samus. But that same childlike trust, that same childlike obedience, that's the starting point of our coming to Christ, is it not? Jesus said you have to become like a little child. That's the starting point of our coming to Christ. And it's whether whether it was in the late 1800s or back in the first century, that same trust and that same obedience, which we call faith, that trust and obedience is faith, is going to be necessary throughout the entire walk of our salvation. Amen? Amen. That same trust and obey is going to be necessary the whole rest of your salvation. And sometimes when you're trusting and obeying, there's no visible net. Amen? Sometimes they're like, Lord, where's the safety net for this? You can't find one. It's one thing to sing the words. It's another thing to live the words, right? But we find the apostles here living out Trusting and obeying. Trusting and obeying Jesus by obeying his commandments in the face of intimidation and uncertainty. You ever have intimidation in your life? Not necessarily by a person, just 
situations that intimidate you, or uncertainty. Maybe you're in an uncertain place right now. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Obey God No Matter What. A lot of people don't like to hear that anymore. I mean, obey God no matter what. But God's not going to change. He's still going to tell you to obey Him no matter what. If all God ever asks us to do are things that we naturally want to do, we would all be models of obedience, would we not? He tells me, all right, Tim, I command you to watch a football game. That is really not hard for me. I could do 10. He doesn't even know me. That's not hard. He's never actually commanded me this anyway. This is something that I like to do. But, but he's ne- if, if that's all he ever asks us to do, things that come natural to us, we'd all be models of obedience. But we know he asks things of us that go against our will, that are uncomfortable for us that we're unprepared for, that we feel untrained for, that we feel unequipped for. Things that test our faith. You know God's always going to test our faith, amen? That's that's why if you find out it is faith. We can be sent into situations or things that come our way that seem threatening to us. Mentally, emotionally, physically, sometimes all three at the same time. And let's be real, without the help of God, they are threatening to us, amen? Now, this isn't always the case. Not all the time are they intimidating, threatening, faith-testing type things. He certainly calls us to things we enjoy that take no discipline at all. Thankfully, God actually gives me something that I have a natural inclination for, and that's kind of like the relief points at times. But there's the other thing. He says, no, you're going to have to go against your natural inclinations. But he does call us to things that we're gifted for, things that we naturally enjoy doing before salvation, and some of them even are part of our DNA after salvation. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? That, that some of the things God calls you to do aren't all that hard. They just are now, oh Lord, I, you know, that some of you, uh, you, you just love, love to love on your kids or your grandkids. That's not something, it's, it's not difficult for you, it just comes natural. But the other things that he might ask you to do, the hard conversations, that's, that's a different story. Some of you, from the day you got saved, you just naturally can love and facilitate fellowship. You have the gift of, gift of hospitality, you can have people over, you can, uh, people energize you. And now it's a command to everyone to be hospitable, it's a command to everyone to have fellowship, it's a command to everyone to be in fellowship. But some people don't, they have to really die to themselves to do that. Others, uh, that they can do all that fellowship stuff and it comes naturally, they have to die themselves to pray. They don't naturally, they're not naturally prayer warriors. Some of you can more easily pray and set that time aside to pray than to get into fellowship and be consistent with fellowship. And the other person says, why? I, I, I struggle with prayer, you struggle with fellowship. God says, you're both going to have to grow in both. It's not, well, he doesn't say, well, if you, if, if, hey, you know, prayer's not for you. Just kind of keep it off the list until heaven, you know? <laughs> Some people love to worship. They can worship for hours. Tell them to witness to one person, and they freeze up. 
Maybe that's a lot of people, right? Now, the apostles, I think you'd agree with me, they were called by Jesus to do a host of things. They, had, they, they were Swiss Army knives for the Lord. They had to teach. They had to study. They had to counsel. They had to pray. They had to encourage. They had to disciple. They knew they were called to love the sheep. They knew they were called to care for the sheep. They knew they were called to help them, to foster the generosity that we saw in the early church which was taking place. We've seen by their own sacrificial lives, them being the apostles, which they first saw in Jesus. We've seen uh, in their own sacrificial lives, they also worked just as hard outside the church to preach the gospel to people who were lost, including those that seem completely uninterested or even adamantly against the gospel. You know, it's funny, uh, yesterday when the kids were out there and they were holding these signs like um, uh, for cars to pull in, and they, and they had donut, they had donut box. Like, you know, like, we didn't have a Bible in there, we had a donut box. So, uh, and they're like, they're not stopping. And they couldn't believe that nobody would, kids could not believe nobody would stop for free donut. It just, it blew their minds. Uh, that, but they didn't know that people are generally just more busy they're not interested in things. That's a church property. I don't have time for this. I've got Home Depot to hit, this to hit, this to hit, this to you know. So, but eventually people did come in. But the apostles were called, just like us, to talk to people that are completely uninterested in the gospel, or even worse, adamantly against it. One thing to say, hey, I'm not interested. But someone says, Tell, say that again, I'll put you in prison. This is what the apostles were dealing with. Jesus even told them that they would suffer as they preach and proclaim in obedience to him. So he said, as you're obedient to me, you're going to suffer the way I suffered, you're going to suffer as well. Not the exact same, but... But then on the heels of God's judgment falling, we know that uh, this, this chapter 5, all of this is taking place uh, immediately after Ananias' fire had dropped dead. God had taken them home, the the fear of the Lord had fallen. All of this, what, you're, what we just read right now, is all on the heels of that. Because out of that, uh, as God judged the sin of pride and deception and Ananias and fire, and he, and he kept the root of the church pure, and he protected the church in this early period, uh, immediately after that was what we saw in verses 12 through, uh, 12 through 16. All of the people, the amazing number of miracles that took place, the, the many souls that were saved, the multitude of sick and lame people that were healed, many people set free from demonic possession, which I believe in our country today, we have people that are possessed and they don't even know it in this country. We see some of the hideous things that are done. How in the world? Demonic possession still exists, I'm sure of it. But out of all of that, God sent this great harvest that the Holy Spirit had brought to the church, and it started with the fear of the Lord falling, with Ananias and Sapphira dropping to the ground, and then all of a sudden a church that was already in love with the Lord became even more saturated with the Holy Spirit, which is almost hard to believe because we've never seen a church that was as filled with the Spirit as them ever since that first century church. But Satan, using the hatred and the disdain that the high priest that the Sadducees, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that they held towards Jesus and that they held towards the apostles. Satan used this uh, hatred and disdain to have the entire group of apostles thrown into prison. So 
uh, on the heels of all of those miracles that were taking place, people coming to Christ, they were indignant. Remember, it says they had indignation, and they threw them into prison. But the Holy Spirit, God's not, God's not in any way inhibited by prison doors or national borders, or big armies, or whatever else the world has, but the Holy Spirit exhibiting yet, a, yet another aspect of his unlimited power, what did he do? He sent an angel from heaven to the prison in a blink of an eye. I don't know which angel it was, but God gave the order, say, hey, go to Jerusalem, get them all out. You know what angels do? Immediately, not like us. Oh, can I do it tomorrow? You know, you know. Uh, how about next week? You know, can I drag my feet a little longer? Now, the fallen angels—they're a different story. They're, they're working for Satan, but but the angels of God—they immediately obey. And so, an angel comes, unlocks the prison doors, and the apostles. The angel tells them, "This is going back to last week. Go back, straight back to the temple." and begin to speak to the people the words of this life. What we talked about this life, that forgiven life, the fulfilling life that only Jesus gives, the eternal life, the, the forgiveness of sin life found only in Jesus. Now, if I was the apostles, I might have had a talk with the angels. said, hey, 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 you realize why we're in here, right? We're in here because we were speaking in the temple about Jesus. You want us to go back and do the exact same thing. And angel's like, yes. But they do. Uh, they, what, what, we don't know if there's a conversation. They just do. They just go back to the temple. Maybe they go back with their knees knocking. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe they're not sure how it's... But they still go. That's obedience. Amen? Because you can sometimes... I've done plenty of things where God's told... You know, some of you that went on a mission trip, you probably had your reservations right up on the time you got on the plane. And even on the plane. And even when you get off the plane. But they obeyed and did exactly that. Now, Satan, go back to Satan for just a second, who's been on a campaign to deceive and destroy souls all the way back since the Garden of Eden. Would you agree with that? Satan has been on a, on a campaign to deceive and destroy souls all the way back to the Garden of Eden when he took the, the form of a serpent. And for the high priest who did not realize, or even if he did, I don't think he realized it, because he, again, he thought he was a holy, godly man. The high priest was, as we talked about last week, a pawn of Satan, though he may not have saw himself that way, and those with him, even though the high priest and the rulers, even though they see once again the unmistakable, never in their lifetime had they ever thrown anyone in prison, and when they went to check the prison, they weren't there, not in their lifetime. Not much less that everything shut, locked, and they're back in the temple. So it was an unmistakable work of the power of God that was on display. And even though the high priest could see that, unsurprisingly, based on their track record, they're going to press forward with pressure, persecution, intimidation. They go, remember we talked about last week, Satan only has two cars to work with either poison the church through sin or persecute the church through intimidation and violence. That's it. Either lure you or attack you, one or the other. And both are forms of attack, but you know, one is a temptation attack. We tried that with Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. Temptation didn't work. 
he went with the crucifixion. That didn't work either because Jesus defeats death. So Satan did both cards, even on Jesus, the same as he'll do with you. He'll either lure you or attack you. You get both. And in our lifetime, we get our combinations of both. But back to the passage in verse 22. Uh, but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely. And the guards standing there. The guards are like, you imagine they come up the guards say, uh, we're going to hear the good prisoners. All right, they're in there. Opens up. They're not in there. The guards had no idea the angel had taken them out before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple preaching and teaching the people. Or in the temple teaching the people. Now, they had their intentions, but I believe they were still quite surprised at what, uh, what transpired here. In fact, they're shocked. The officers are shocked. They get there, hide the guards, unlock the door. No one's in there. Ask the guards, what did you do at the prison? We didn't. We, we've been here all night. We've been guarding them. We have no idea how, how they just dissolved how they're just invisible. There's no hole in the floor. There's no hole in the ceiling. There's no, no one got them out that they could tell. Everything was locked as same as it always was, and yet they're not there. This defies the laws of physics and all kinds of other things. Then they tell the high priest and the others what's taken place, and it says they wondered what the outcome would be. What's going to happen with this situation? This is the high priest thinking and his, his entourage of leaders. What has happened? How'd they get out? Are they miles away now? Which in their case probably would be not a bad thing if they were miles away. They just want them out of the city. They just, just get out of here. Nope, they're minutes away. They're not miles away. They're minutes away. They're feet away. As they're pondering what's taken place, someone runs in and says, hey, the guys that y'all are looking for, they're in the tent. Look out. Apparently the vantage point they had, they could actually look out a window or something and actually see down into the temple. And lo and behold, there they are teaching and preaching to people. No one knows how they got out. So the officers are sent, hey, since they're not in prison, go get them out of the temple. Bring them to us. Bring them to uh, us. We want to interrogate them. So the officers go back and retrieve the apostles. It says that they were fearing the crowds. They didn't want to be stoned. So they were very gentle, very kind, didn't do any violence, didn't take them by force. Said, hey, would you please come with us and speak to the high priest? Uh, they, they, have, they want to talk to you. Uh, they noticed you're not in jail. And they notice you're actually back where they arrested you in the first place. And we've come full circle. Can we start all over again? And they do. And they, um, I believe that the officers, just kind of based on the context, were more intrigued how they got out than the high priest. The rulers, and my, my view on this, the, notice that the rulers, they don't even ask the apostles how they got out. This would be one of the, like, I'm a curious person. How about the rest of y'all? I'm a fairly curious person. If I see that we put you in prison, and all the locks are still on the prison, all the guards are there, my first question is, how did you get out? Notice the high priest 
does not want to hear the answer to this question. <laughs> and I say that you're meeting people at work that the reason they'll never have a follow-up question some of the things you say is they don't want to know the answer. A lot of times people, they, they, they already know kind of the answer you're going to give, and it convicts that they don't want to hear the answer. They don't even ask. I mean, someone in that room, I'm sure a low-level one that was kind of pondering, there's always a Nicodemus in the group, is probably thinking, I'd really kind of like to know how they got out. But Caiaphas is not going to ask it. He is so stubborn, he is not going to ask how they got out. No one asks how they got out. No, instead of asking how they got out, it's obvious that they don't want to know. And even if they, if they did ask, which they don't, but if they did, and the apostles said an angel of God, they still wouldn't believe that anyway. They would still say, ah, that's not it. No angel. You guys have never seen an angel. And they're like, we have seen angels. You haven't, but we have. We saw them at the resurrection. We saw them the other night at the, uh, at, at, might as well be a hotel. At the, um, at the prison, you know, you made it a prison. God made it an exit place. But instead of asking how they got out, they go back to what they had told Peter and John at their very first arrest for healing the man who had been lame from birth. When they told them then, now they're reminding them of what they already said. We had, we had told you, do not speak in this man's name. Notice they refused to even say the name of Jesus. This man's name. Brother and sister, there's power in the name of Jesus. I, I say it a lot. That's why people use his name as a swear word. They do not use Muhammad. They do not use Confucius. They do not use Buddha. They use the name of Jesus as a swear word, although they'll give an account for that if they don't repent in time. But there's power in that name. There's no power in those other names. That's why they like to use God's name as a swear word. There's power in the name of God. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of the Holy Spirit. But their disdain for Jesus, don't want to use his name, don't even want to speak his name. Their disdain for Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is equaled only by their delusion. They can't stand the, uh, they can't stand the gospel, they can't stand the apostles, they hate these men with a passion, and they hate that the gospel has gone all throughout the city of Jerusalem, and it has. And while they're at it, while they say, hey, did we not tell you not to speak this man's name? And look, now your doctrine's all over the city. And you intend, they go ahead and um, make the case that they are innocent of the blood of this man. Of course, they won't say his name. You know who we're talking about, right? You know, that's kind of the, the guy y'all follow, that, the, that guy. We're innocent of his blood. They, make, they try and make the case. And I believe that they technically would say, because these guys are, you ever, you ever deal with people that everything with them is a technicality? You might work with someone like that. Everything's a technicality. Well, you said, well, you know what I meant. But, but that's not you. you know, everything's a technicality. And technically, they might would say, Pilate's guilty and the people are guilty, but we are not guilty. We didn't condemn him. Pilate condemned him. We didn't say, give us Barabbas. The people said, give us Barabbas. We'll come back to that in a minute. But back to the word delusion. Uh, delusion, and many of you probably are well familiar with the word delusion, but if you're not... Delusion, delusion is a denial of evidence and reality. It's kind of becoming a hallmark of our country. 
denial of evidence and reality. We don't know what a man is from a woman anymore. We don't know just about anything. We are becoming delusional in so many respects as as a society. But delusion is often willful deception. Like, you just flat out lie to yourself. And the, the religious leaders and the high priests, they were so crafty and lying to themselves. They aren't crafty. They think they're crafty. But they, they lie to themselves, and they convince themselves that Pilate might be guilty of this man's blood. The people might be guilty of this man's blood. But they were not guilty of this man's blood. They were the, they're the whole reason Jesus ever went to the cross. They were the ones that had him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were the ones that had the trumped-up charges. They were the ones that got him to Pilate as soon as the sun rose. And made sure they got every bit of leverage to make sure Pilate was put in a position that he had to, of course he could have said no, but they wanted him to make sure that he gave the decree for Jesus to be killed. They also influenced the people. So they were saying, hey, by the way, we hate the gospel that you're preaching. We hate the doctrine. We hate the friend all this. And by the way, we're innocent. Don't try and put his blood on us. It should be noted that Pilate thought he was innocent of this. Look up on the screen, Matthew 27, verse 24 and 25. Pilate literally says it. He flat out says it. He doesn't even say um, uh, that we shouldn't have this man's blood on us. He flat out says the words, I am innocent, Pilate says, of the blood of this just person. Notice Pilate can't say his name either. For different reasons, none of them can say the name of Jesus. Guilty conscience, hatred, combination of both. And he goes on to say, you see to it. And the people, the big crowd, answered, his blood be on us and our children. Gee, thanks, Mom and Dad. Because everyone in Jerusalem was going to suffer because of this by 70 AD. Jerusalem would be slaughtered, destroyed by Titus, the Roman general, who would later become emperor and Caesar, and the few people that would survive would be put into slavery or thrown into the Colosseums for sport to fight like gladiators to the death. That's what would happen. So that curse, when they said, his blood be on us, a lot of blood did fall on them. The blood flowed from Jerusalem. It was also a foreshadow of what will come to Jerusalem at the end of the age in the tribulation period. All this is foreshadowing these things. Now, certainly, they're all guilty. We would not agree. Caiaphas is guilty. Pilate's guilty. The people are guilty. The Sanhedrin's guilty. All of them are guilty. And, by the way, so are we. Amen? That's why we need Jesus. We're guilty, too. We're also guilty of what took place in the garden. We're guilty of what took place at Calvary. Now, with Peter, he doesn't hold back. And, you know, they gave their state opening statement. Peter has a return statement. And quite a return statement is, but Peter and the other apostles answered, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's, that's all he has to say, but he has a few more things. The Holy Spirit says, while you're at it, itemize these. We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. This is not a way to stay out of trouble uh, with guys that already hate you. Him, God has exalted the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel 
and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. First, Peter expresses there in verse 29 this foundational truth to our life and our walk in Christ. In this world, however many years God gives you and me, in this world, we are called to obey God above everything else. But what if the government says we can't? You are called to obey God above everything else. But what if my in-laws don't like our faith? You are called to obey God. more than. What if my spouse doesn't want anything to do with church? You are called to obey God more than anything else. And sometimes that's in direct conflict with people in our life, with the desires of other people, and even the authorities. At this point, they had reached the authority level. They might already had family members that weren't having them over for matzah and whatever else. You know, right? They already might have that going on, but it was escalating. Now you have the authorities are saying, you either don't do this or you're going to suffer serious consequences, which we'll get to in a minute. Now Jesus had told them to teach and preach his gospel. That was their command, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses. Jesus has not changed his command no one else is allowed to change his command. The high priest and the rulers said what they were doing was forbidden. Say, uh, whatever this man told you to do, we're telling you, disregard what he said. You're going to do what we say. Now, who, th- who should they obey? Caiaphas is the high priest. That's, that's the highest religious title or the highest title in even that ministry that was given to Moses and Aaron, that the high priest was a position that God honored, even though he wasn't the first false ruler in that position. There was others too, just like there were false prophets in the Old Testament as well. There's false pastors all over America. So it's not the first and last time that there's people with the title, but the wrong relate or no relationship with God, for that matter. But notice that Peter, now Peter knows who they should obey, so that's why he's going to say, we, we must obey God. Uh, notice that Peter doesn't say we must obey Jesus. He knows that they don't, they don't want to talk about Jesus, but G- Peter knows that Jesus is God. Amen? We must obey God. The high priests and rulers claim to always obey God. They, they, they were the most loyal followers of God. That's the way that they presented themselves. I, I believe people downstream probably looked at them sometimes and like, you know, want to gag, right? Like, these guys are not. And other people looked and, and, and kind of bought what they were selling and probably did think that they were super, you know, holy men. These guys, they don't even sin. The rest of us are, the rest of us are flawed, but not Caiaphas. But they definitely considered that Jesus was just, in their view, Jesus was just a man. But how Peter frames this statement tells us that any commandment that's from Jesus is also from God. Amen? If Jesus gives the command, you know it's coming from God. Now, Jesus is God. We know he's one with God. We know he's equal to the Father. And yet we know he's the Son of the Father. How does all that make sense? I can't explain, and neither can you. Some of this is beyond, if you have someone that tries to really, I can explain this perfection, they can't. Nobody can. This is how God 
Jesus is one with the Father, and yet he's the Son of the Father. But he commands you and me, and when he commands you and me, we can know that they are the very commands of God. Peter and the other apostles, it says with him, so the other apostles either voicing. Peter was the lead spokesperson, as best we can tell here. That's the way Luke records it. So Peter's doing most of the speaking, although they might have chimed in because as the others with him. He continues saying, the God of our fathers. The, the, Peter is speaking brother to brother. These are all Jewish men in the room. Some of the Jewish men, the 12, believe in Jesus. The rest of the men, as best we can tell, although Nicodemus and others could be there too, <clears throat> don't believe in Jesus. But they're all Jewish brethren. So he's saying the God of our, he's saying inclusively, look, we have the same God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's, Peter's saying, the same God that you guys worship, that you try and tell the people we should follow the law, we should keep the commandments, all of those, that's the same God that raised Jesus. In other words, you're resisting the God you proclaim. You're resisting the God you proclaim. And you, we don't want in our life resist the God we proclaim, do we? But that can happen with us too. And he goes on with an oh-by-the-way moment. Uh, and by the way, you murdered him. <laughs> Just throw that in there. You know, you're, not, you're not innocent of the blood, by the way. You murdered him on tree. That's called crucifixion. You can try and attach it to Pilate, but you made it happen. And you're guilty of his blood. But the good news is, for all of us to be saved, their murder failed. Verse 31, him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior. Now we know in the book of Isaiah, Jesus is called wonderful counselor and all that. But it goes on to say prince of peace. And you and I need a prince of peace, don't we? We need the prince of peace. But we don't need only a prince of peace, we also need a savior. We need the covering of our sins. And it says, prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. As it relates <coughs> to the mission of Jesus and coming to this world, the death and resurrection that Jesus, uh, the death and resurrection has given a path the only path, the only doorway to repentance and forgiveness, not only to Israel, but he says Israel here. He says to Israel. Why? Because again, he's speaking to his brethren saying, in the context of this room, all of us that are very religious, because did you realize everyone in the room is religious? Every, this was not an agnostic atheist meeting, or people that were non-religious, or, or the, to people who were just into kind of hedonistic partying. Everyone in the room was super religious. And he's saying, under the, under the umbrella of Israel, if any of us are going to be saved, this is the only way. It's Jesus. That he is the path for repentance and the forgiveness of sin. Now, we know Peter was not saying that it, it, those outside of Israel, he was just talking to a Jewish audience. So he tailored the conversation Israel. Now, if he was speaking to Greeks, he would have expanded and said, and the rest of the world, because you know, Jesus had already taught that, John chapter 3 and other places. They were already told to go into all the world. So we know this. But he's speaking to his audience here, and sometimes, again, God has us speak more directly to an audience than kind of a wider context, depending on where we're at in a conversation. Verse 32 
it goes on, and, be, and we are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Because of the finished work of Jesus, um, what we know of as the good news is the gospel. We, we call the gospel good news, and that's what it is. That's its literal meaning. And because the apostles had seen firsthand, the minute, like, you and I read about it. I didn't see Jesus' ministry firsthand. I didn't see him feed the 5,000. I didn't see him walk on the water. I didn't see anything, but they did. They saw his ministry firsthand. They saw his miracles firsthand. They saw him die on a cross, which just, just gutted them for about three days. Then they saw his resurrection, and they saw his resurrected body with them for the 40 days. And Jesus was the one that gave them the command to tell all of this, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the good news that anyone can be forgiven of any sin, from any religious construct, of anything, no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. He said, yeah, I want you to take that good news, and I want you to be witnesses of everything you saw in me. And that's what he's expressing here. He says, we are his witnesses. And then Acts 1, he said, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say right there, with the help of this, uh, also he's given us the Holy Spirit, who's God, God has given to those who obey him, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit, who's also called the helper, that upper room when Jesus told him, I'm going to send the helper, who is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Spirit, who he promised who would live in them, which is the indwelling of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, Paul writes about in Corinthians, and also would come upon them, which happened at Pentecost. The Spirit then came upon, baptized the entire church, but also baptized the individuals within the church. So was it the church or individuals? Yes, right? So the baptism came upon. But he's saying here, the Holy Spirit will always be given to those who obey, those who obey him, which we started out at this point. Everyone, if you want to come, you're going to have to trust and obey. Everyone's going to have to trust and obey. Some people won't obey. Well, you guys know I got saved, my wife and I, same altar call, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, June of 1995. That moment, we did what the scriptures say, we obeyed the gospel. As a matter of fact, the term obey the gospel is in the New Testament a couple of times, but we obeyed the gospel, and that was the starting point of a life of now, with the help of the Holy Spirit, because if you don't have the help of the Holy Spirit, you won't your obedience is going to flop really fast, right? But if you have the Holy Spirit, you can actually start to walk in obedience, but that was the starting point. And not everyone will obey the gospel. Caiaphas refuses up to this point to obey the gospel. Would we not agree with that? He refuses to obey the gospel. Peter, same Peter that's talking to Caiaphas here, in 1 Peter 4, 7, it's up on the screen, he said in his, one, in his first epistle, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Not everyone will obey the gospel. Some will choose the broad road to destruction. It's easy to go that way. All you have to do is do whatever you're doing. You're already on it. You have to decide to take the U-turn and go the opposite way and say, I'm going to obey Christ and get off the broad road to destruction and the narrow way that leads to eternal life. But Peter says, First of all, even those who have obeyed the gospel unto salvation, 
have to continue to grow in obedience. That judgment, you know it says judgment there? It means basically discern, assess, God is looking at the church. And remember the letter to the seven churches, Jesus kind of assesses. He gives his judgment on each church, not judges them in the sense of you're judged for hell kind of judgment, but he gives a judgment, right? You make a judgment call, and, and you can make a judgment. Jesus makes the judgment call and says, all right, uh, I'm looking at your life, and you're obedient here, here, and here, but here you're not being obedient. And it's saying that, remember the, the, the same fear of the Lord that fell in the church, God heightens the inspection areas of our heart and mind. But if you're oh, disobedient to the gospel, you never hear God's voice in those things. You don't even care, right? That's Caiaphas. The deep recesses of his heart can't be touched until the first step of obedience is taken. So what will happen to those who disobey? Well, there really is an eternity. There really is a hell. There really is a permanent judgment. But those of us who believe in Jesus and surrender his life, there is the opportunity with that first step of obedience to the, uh, to the gospel, then we can have the continued obedience of trusting and obeying year after year after year of growing. And after salvation, we are called to grow in obedience. And Peter's speaking to the church here, obviously, in, uh, in this epistle. Oswald Chambers says this, he says, spiritual, many of you probably have uh, his uh, devotional in your house, we have several. Uh, spiritual maturity is not reached by the passing of years, but by obedience to the will of God. Just kind of being saved for 20 years doesn't make you more obedient or maturing in obedience. You actually have to obey to mature in obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself was martyred uh, for the faith, he says, faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And, with, uh, and faith only becomes faith by the act of obedience. So once again, God's going to test our faith. He's going to test what we say we believe in. He's going to test our obedience. He's going to test if we really will die to our will and to his will. The apostles were in this test right now. Were they going to keep speaking the name of Jesus? Or are they going to say, all right, Caiaphas, you win. We don't want to suffer, so we will stop saying the name of Jesus. They did not, Jesus had not given them an out clause. So they were in that place. Now remember Peter, quite a change had taken place in his life in a really short period of time. Remember he had previously denied Jesus three times. For what reason? Fear. And we can all, we can all relate to him that night. We can all say, you know what? If I was in Peter's shoes... And I thought I'd be crucified alongside Jesus because he'd already made a big claim that he was willing to die that way. And then he kind of rethought that. Said, I'm not quite ready for that. So I'll deny him three times and I'll ask for forgiveness later. But Jesus was really gracious with him and did not only restore him, but after he had come back and Jesus had restored him, his faith had been strengthened and he did obey the Lord. He basically got the same command the apostles got the night of the upper room was to wash feet. And then he got another command there on the shores of Galilee was to feed sheep. So the entirety of his ministry, if you want to kind of sum it up, Peter knew that the rest of his life was to be washing feet and feeding sheep. Washing feet, feeding sheep. Everything he saw Jesus do. And, and he was now walking in obedience to that there in the church, there in Acts. From the prayer meeting all the way to this point, we see Peter doing that. Washing the feet of the saint, preaching and teaching, which is feeding the sheep, but also... Uh, carrying out the Great Commission, 
uh, sharing the gospel, he and the others were now able to be obedient to the command of Jesus, even in the face of imprisonment, persecution, and even death. They had come to the place, him and the other 11, that they were willing that the Holy Spirit had empowered them. Because you couldn't do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. I can't do it. I can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. They were able to really obey God no matter what. I mean, 11 of them are going to die martyr's death. They don't even know how that's going to transpire. Verse 33, let's wrap it up with these last few verses. Uh, verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Verse 34, then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, uh, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to, be put, to put the apostles outside for a little bit. So get them outside the room for just a moment. Let's talk. Verse 35, speaking to his own uh, peer group, the high priest and others, he said, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that you intended, uh, what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, <clears throat> Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this work, is a, if this plan or this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. That's a fact. Lest you even be found to fight against God which they already were. And they agreed with him, and they called for the people and the apostles, and uh, called and had the apostles and beaten them. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus <coughs> as the Christ. We know that when they heard this, Peter's witness and Peter's uh, response to their reminding them, you're, you're, you're forbidden to this, why are you doing this, and why are you trying to get this man's blood on us? After Peter's response, they're furious. Uh, they want these men killed. Their first thought is to kill them. They're, they're murderous at heart. This is the first time in the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, this is the very first time that killing the apostles is mentioned as an option. This is the first time. This is when their future martyrdom is actually set into motion. This is now, this will be, Satan is like lit, the kind of like uh, the, the, um, the fuse, yeah, the fuse. And, and now it's going to run some time, but the fuse has been lit. Thank you. I might have a brain lapse there. The fuse has been lit, and it's set in motion. Eventually, what their desire is, they're going to get to carry it out, just like they did with Jesus. They want them murdered. But I want to tell you that, that people that won't, especially people in power, and in this world we've got a lot of people that have significant power, at least in this lifetime. It's going to be taken away the second they die, if they're not in Christ. But for a little while, they have power. Uh, men that won't obey the gospel end up obeying the murderous desires of Satan. That's why we have organized crime, why we have mafia, human trafficking, pornography, alcohol industry, everything. That, I mean, people are dying, drugs, drug smuggling, kills all these things, kill tons of people. Because people that don't want Jesus 
they don't know. By the way, they're not trying, in some of these cases, they're not trying to do violence. It just happens. They end up fulfilling Satan's murderous desire. Because remember back to the garden, he wants to deceive and destroy. Deceive and destroy. Rome like a uh, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so Satan has this plan for them. And Jesus had even told them that they would suffer. Uh, but it was not their time to die yet. It wasn't the time to die. Those days would come. And a Pharisee, as you, we just read, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel stands up. And Gamaliel, he was given the title Rabban, which is higher than rabbi. It means our teacher. So he was like, he was like a rabbi of rabbis. Very well respected. He, uh, his grandfather had started a school of rabbinical studies there in Jerusalem, and he was the overseer of it. And even the high priest himself had great respect. Even Caiaphas had great respect for Gamaliel. He held a lot of sway. Um, now, sadly, he had already had enough evidence to say, <laughs> I mean, a man had been healed that had been lame from birth. Uh, the apostles had been let out of prison. Jesus had risen from the dead. He had more than enough evidence to actually go ahead and say, men, this is true. But he still was in a wait-and-see approach. Some people will wait decades, no matter how much evidence you give them. But he still, at least, he caused a pause here. Because they would have been killed or stoned probably on the spot, taken out in stone. But because he said, let's wait and see if it's really of God, it's, and by the way, 2,000 years later, it's still going on. So it really was of God, right? So if it's really of God, it'll keep going. If it's not of God, it's going to dissipate. Uh, those other things he mentioned, they didn't last but you know, a handful of years. Here we are 2,000 years later, it is clearly the work of God. And so he, uh, he was used at least even, uh, I hope and pray someday he came to faith. He wasn't there yet. Uh, maybe we'll see him in heaven, I don't know. But he wasn't there yet. He was still on the fence. But at least he had enough respect to stop them from being murdered that day, which uh, that was, the Holy Spirit used it. But as we close here, uh, so they departed from there and uh, it's interesting, we know that the others reluctantly went along with him because of their respect for him. How do we know that? They still gave him a beating before they left. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Gamaliel, all right, we'll agree with you, but we still want to like, really make sure they know where we stand. And all 12 of them were beaten. Can you imagine being arrested for something you didn't do? And everyone in the room agrees you're innocent, say, but just so in case you get an idea, we're going to beat you on the way out. And then they rejoice for this. It says they rejoice that they were worthy to suffer for his name. And then they go straight back. They become fearless. They were usually they were formerly fearful. And they begin to preach all about Jesus in the temple, in every house. They actually ramp it up after their beating. And they have joy in the process. It's amazing. Um, the only way that you'll have joy and peace grow in your life, and this, this is counterintuitive to the world, the way you will have joy and peace grow in your life is to obey God no matter what. Amen? That's true. God says, you can trust me or you can trust yourself. I think his track record speaks for itself. Amen? Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. And Lord, that uh, if we obey you no matter what, we may not understand how things will go, but we know that you'll be faithful. And Lord, we know that even in difficult circumstances or valleys in our life or uncertainty or times when there's no safety net, you can even give us an 
unexplainable joy that the apostles had. You said that their joy would be full, John chapter 15, and they were experiencing it. Even it probably shocked them that they were able to rejoice in that moment. And Lord, we pray that we would be changed in such a way as we simply trust you and obey you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand as we close in worship?